This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Bitcoin, glimmering gold, digital gold, legal twists. We have got your hour covered. It's very interesting looking at what's uh, going on in two things that have been generally the uh, selection for investors that are looking for a safe haven. Both gold and Bitcoin have been Soaring. They've been popping off. Spot gold prices briefly hit an all-time high of over $2,100 an ounce on Sunday night. Monday, gold futures hit an intraday record of trading at $2,152 an ounce. Both later pulled back a bit. Meanwhile, meanwhile, it's starting to look like Bob Menendez is smarter and smarter for wanting all that gold, all those gold bars around. Meanwhile, Bitcoin surge past $41,000 for the first time, that's one Bitcoin, since April of 2022, putting it 150% up for the year. So I'm curious what you think this is all about. I mean, I think some people clearly are bullish on Bitcoin, uh, they got over the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, and they figured maybe with more regulations, people are going to be turning more to this. Maybe they're thinking that the signs are that um, uh, interest rates are going to come down, and when interest rates go down, um, inflation may go up, and the people look to things like gold as a hedge against inflation. When it comes to Bitcoin, uh, the rally, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, are just so volatile. I mean, it's like betting on the roulette table. I still don't see, and I know the people that love Bitcoin love it. I still don't see how um, many businesses using Bitcoin. I, I see some, but not many. I don't go to the store. I see when I go to the store, ninety percent of the time. I see people paying with cash or credit. It's almost unheard of for me to have a, see a store that sees that says we take Bitcoin, and and even rarer for me to see someone actually pay in Bitcoin. So I, I think until some places actually start using cryptocurrencies as currency, I, I think it's really just a speculative asset. Doesn't mean it's a bad investment. Clearly, if you bought it in April of uh, 2022 and you saw the price go up 150%, you're having a very Merry Christmas. Brian uh, and uh, Brian McGlone, excuse me, Mike McGlone, who's a gold expert, told Yahoo Finance why gold is reaching new highs. 
Gold up, S&P 500 down, I think is a potential trajectory for next year. The key thing right now is gold's just kind of frustrating to most people, made a new high. And then we, uh, late basically last night at $2,135 an ounce. And now it's just trying to see if it can hold that support around $2,000 an ounce. That used to be resistance. I think it will. But I think you mentioned the key factor is if the stock market keeps going up and U.S. interest rates stay high, there's not a re- lot of reason for gold. But I think that's all transitioning. Now, one of the things today is the market's price for a lot of Fedies next year, Fed fund futures, so almost 100 basis points by this time next year, which might be more an issue for the stock market. But the way I see gold is the deepest pockets on the planet are buying gold. That's central banks. Now, ETFs haven't really been much buyers, but I think gold is in the early days of a bull market breaking out to new highs and um, just frustrating some people by not continuing. Trade expert Brian Kelly was on CNBC explaining why he think, thinks Bitcoin is going through the roof. Uh, so this move is really built on this anticipation of an ETF, probably January 5th to January 10th. So as it gets higher as a trader, of course, I'm going to get a little scared because you're saying how much of that is already priced in. We're getting pretty close to that. Um, but in terms of the longer term trajectory for Bitcoin, I think you just have to think of it as we're in this, car, let's call it one to two year bull market period. We'll have these pullbacks. Even in 17, when we had a massive run, we had months that it was down 30, 40 percent. So you just have to keep that in mind. It's interesting. Um, when you think of gold and when you think of Bitcoin, that's always generally been the favorite investment vehicles of people think the whole country is going to hell in a handbasket. They think everything is going uh, you know, off the rails. They think we're all going to be uh, half living off the grid. They think we're all going to go down the tubes. And I re- one of the newsletters I read is The Morning Brew, and they had a very interesting quote. And it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's very funny because of the types of folks that generally buy gold and Bitcoin. It said... Has anyone considered adding canned beans and bunkers to their portfolio? Seems like a good time to be the type of investment people make when they're worried about the stability of the system because both gold and Bitcoin have traditionally been just that. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far. Unfortunately, Ellen, uh, she didn't want to hang on. She hung up, so I'm sorry that I didn't get to hear the rest of Ellen's comment or question, but... You know, unfortunately, when you have a network show, when the clock hits 59.10, the clock hits 59.10. The show's going to break whether I'm ready to break or not, so it may as well be ready. 800-848-9222, one open line if you want to comment. Let me begin with Daniel in Lakewood. Daniel, what's going on? How's it going? I'm a little confused because I'm listening to the radio and I'm also speaking to you. I don't... You're, okay. you're, you're confused because of why? Because I, I hear your I hear your voice on the radio and it's saying something different than my conversation with you over the phone. Anyways, never mind. Um, I'm I'm just kind of coming off of what I heard from uh, Doctor Martigo, who wrote the book. I don't think she's um, a doctor. Okay, this is Mar- Martigo. Yeah, I'm an Orthodox Jew, and um, I just kind of want to like kind of give a, more of a picture of what she what your question um, led her to led her to speak about about like that family time that happens like once a week. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it comes out like much more than that. I mean, um, besides for the family time that's created when everyone's not on their screen, the exposure of what the internet has that could that these kids see, like, could really just—I don't want to say strong words, but like, really destroy the development. Besides, even like the explicit content there, the the the, the pressure they feel and their self-image, 
and all that, that just, there's so much bad things that could be on the internet that could really just, besides the times that they do things outdoor and enjoy life, the actual content of the internet really damages them and also damages their, their brain process. So I'm just saying the, 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 the outlook of Orthodox Jews is like, we don't even have it in the home at all. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And if we do, it's completely, completely filtered because we want to refrain from any potential damage that, of exposure that internet can have on our development. It's not just that one day a week. Uh, is that to, for it, adults as well or just children? It's for everyone. I mean, like a, a, um, a, an adult kid, his challenges could be, you know, explicit content that could ruin his marriage. And, and a kid, it could be that. And, and, but social media is saying, seeing things that are not right, you know, and then leading him to wanting to try that. Yeah, uh, Daniel, uh, look, I think obviously you and any other family should do whatever works well, uh, whatever works well for you. Personally, uh, from my perspective, I found the Internet to be, uh, honestly, a total gift. I-, I have been able to discover writers and do research that would have taken me not hours, but days if I was uh, just doing it at a library somewhere. And I'm able to find research and uh, all sorts of information from experts and historical figures and opinion leaders in in seconds. And uh, really, I find the Internet, I still, even though I use it every day, I'm still blown away by it because I could get a, a thorough history of the the wrestling stable, the NWO, uh, and links to documentaries and links to, to podcasts and recommendations for books on that subject. And then I could also, um, you know, uh, do a, a whole bunch of research on William Rufus Devane King, the only vice president that was, ne- that was not sworn in in the United States. Who was this man? What were the circumstances that led him to be sworn? in uh, is there any truth to the fact that he was gay uh, could he have actually been a lover of James Buchanan um, what and it leads to so many other interesting things and other interesting writers so I think you obviously should do whatever works for you and your family I would not want to deprive both myself and my son quite frankly as he gets older and develops a love of learning of the incredible tools that the internet has to offer. I'm all for monitoring what he's looking at on the internet, and the younger he is, obviously, the more monitoring there'll be. But I I really think for my family, uh, eliminating the internet is not the way to go for me. 100%. So I also know with the the introduction of AI, you know, the internet's incredible. In hearing your response, I guess I'm trying to understand more what I was trying to say which is that the internet is very powerful and is incredible no, 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 and helpful in so many ways. Nothing to talk about, right? I don't, I don't know how to get around without Waze or Google Maps, right? But it can be used in an extremely good way. Sure. In research, like you, you just mentioned, you know, like I don't even have half that knowledge of what you just mentioned, you know? And, and I did go to college engineering, but like just the things, the topics you mentioned that are, that are intriguing, the internet can offer that knowledge and curios- spike your curiosity and natural desire to learn, which is great. And, and it, it, it helps address that as growing and curious human beings. But it also has very bad. So if there's a way that we could filter out the bad and keep the good, that would sure. be ideal. Well, yeah, that so makes we, sense. Right. So as Mr. Martigo was referring to, like, you know, at uh, three, three, at two years old, you do, I mean, I think she said, at two years old, do this. At 16, maybe introduce it. I think the simplest solution, that, which is what the Orthodox community does, Orthodox Jewish community does, is we're very big on filters. And, like, you could get the phone in, have him in, but filter it. Sure. And I know Apple has a natural filter in it, but there's also external filters that are much more, you know, as intelligent as the Internet is, which is that they have the great images on explicit content. They have the, um, they have the, the, the blocking out of any social media. 
So if you want to bring in a phone for your kid, you don't have social media, you know, what's going to make you control him not downloading on Google Maps? Yes, he is a loyal and good kid, but his curiosity could spike him, and then he could be exposed to everything late at night right. before he goes to sleep on the smartphone. So the answer, I think, just to help the, our generation, which is our helping in our community, is filter, filter, filter. Because that gives full, full access to the good and takes out all the bad. Sure, so makes sense to me. Thank you, Daniel. I want to try and get in one more call uh, here before we talk with uh, John Banzaf on the subject of uh, speed limiters and a whole lot more. Lisa is in Connecticut. Hi, Lisa. Hey, he was a great call. That was great. He was know. good, um, yeah. Yeah, very, very good point. And, um, and, and then also the other discussion with um, the woman about everything. I wanted to let you know, when I was a kid, of course, my dad was a, a coach gym teacher, coach ref, right? And he used to have, like, exercise mats. Like, do you have, like, a little yoga mat? Maybe you could sit on the ground and you put your feet together, you and Carmine, and you pass, like, a little plush ball back and forth to do motor skill stuff, right? So you could help motor skill development. And then also, I thought of, like, when I was a kid, I used to build forts in the house or outside in a tree. I used to, like, go in a forsythia bush I cut it out and then made a little fort. And then it was like a cool place to go that like you had to have a secret password to come into. And you, <laughs> you know what I mean? You could build like a little fort or something, do an activity in the house, make um, the pillows and a blanket or whatever, do like a little fort activity inside if it's a rainy day. I like that. I mean, we do a lot. Of, I don't have a yoga mat, but we do do some similar things. And honestly, I'm not too worried about his motor skills. He throws balls b- better than I do, and that's yeah. not an exaggeration. Lisa, thank you. Uh, I like that uh, suggestion, though. Maybe we will build a fort. Uh, that, that'll be a lot of fun. All right. John Banzaf uh, joins us in a moment to talk uh, legal issues, Trump, speed limiters, transgender athletes, and more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, yesterday we had a really interesting discussion over some proposals by the NTSB to limit speeding deaths in the future. And a lot of the callers raised really interesting points. And wherever they came down on it, I really appreciated their perspective. One of the things that I mentioned was a rather interesting proposal from Professor John Banzaf. Now, I mentioned yesterday, and I'll say this even though you're about to hear from him in a moment, that he is exactly the type of person that you would never want to be friends with. Because not only is this man a brilliant lawyer, in fact, he was a professor of public interest law at George Washington University Law School, kind of achieved legendary status there, but he's also an MIT educated engineer and holds multiple patents. He's been called the man behind the band on cigarette commercials, uh, the Ralph Nader of cigarettes. He's one of those people that upon listening to, upon reading, and upon meeting, you kind of realize right away that he's much smarter than you. 
So how can you ever be friends with someone like that? Well, I might not be able to be friends with him, but I can absolutely have him on the radio because it just so happens there is a cornucopia of issues that require his expertise. Very pleased to welcome back to the program a professor of public interest law emeritus at George Washington University Law School, John Banzeff. Professor, it's great to talk with you. Thanks, Frank. I do consider you a friend, and let's talk about this proposal. Uh, There's a very interesting study just came out, and as Forbes magazine reported it, quote, most drivers engage in dangerous behavior, and speeders are the worst. And in fact, one-third of all traffic fatalities in the U.S. are caused by speeding. So the NTSB, as it's called here in Washington, has proposed a complex system. It wants to use your car's GPS location. It wants to use a database of posted speed limits, wants to add on some onboard cameras. And they're going to use all of this just to warn you, just to warn the driver when they're speeding, which probably won't do that much good. (laughs) But since it's going to require new technology and many years to test, and implement, it's only going to be marginally effective years from now. There's a much better, simpler today solution. I want to get into that solution and pick your brain on a number of other things. But one of the things that I like to do, I've noticed with with my audience, and I think with most audiences, they don't mind hearing alternative views. If they're conservative, they don't mind hearing a, a liberal perspective. If they're liberal, they don't mind hearing a conservative perspective. But people don't like to feel like they're being duped. For instance, they don't like to uh, think that they're listening to someone that uh, calls balls and strikes and is uh, supposedly objective while they're sneaking in right-wing or left-wing propaganda, just so the audience can kind of guard themselves against you uh, as they may need to against whatever biases you may have. Fill folks in. Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you something else? How would you characterize your own politics? I would not characterize my politics as either. I try to be practical. And in fact, I'm one of the few people who ever sat on both sides of that old uh, CNN program, Crossfire, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I got integrity, where I was yelled at by the conservative on one program, I was yelled at by the liberal on the other, so I try to just be reasonable in the middle. I, I, I do remember at least one of those appearances, and they were certainly always, uh, always spirited. All right, so let's talk about uh, speeding and speed limiting. The proposal by the NTSB, I didn't realize that was just a warning. I actually thought it would limit uh, the, uh, the speed that a car would drive. What are you proposing? Uh, you seem to say it would be much more effective and could be implemented much more easily. Yes, both, all of them. Here's why. Virtually every modern car on the road today already has a high-speed limiter, which is built in to the existing onboard computer. And it is set by the manufacturer so that once you go above the set speed, it will not let you go any faster. Now, the only problem is the set speeds range from 110 to 150 miles an hour, which is roughly the speed at which your tires would disintegrate from centrifugal force. So all you would have to do, I shouldn't say you, but any car dealer, any good garage, uh, even some amateurs, I, I actually used one, simply plugs in a simple device and resets that high-speed uh, limit. It's, it's a little bit like uh, if you have a computer and you have a word processor and you reset the font and the size and whether it's boldface or something like that. 
And so without waiting for the NTSB or Congress or anybody else, any state, your state, my state, could simply pass a requirement saying from now on, every car has got to have an upper limit set at, say, 90 miles an hour, maybe even 100 miles an hour. Now, for people who are have teen drivers, people worried about stuck throttle runaway accidents, people convicted of DWI and so on, maybe the courts would order it lower. But this could be done tomorrow, and then every time you bring your car in for inspection, as everybody does in every state, one of the things they would inspect is, has the speed limit been set, say, to 90 or 100 miles an hour? It's so simple. It can be done instantly. Any one state which wants to do it first and, in a sense, test it out can do it. I mean, it sounds very simple and very easily implemented. What's been the reaction from your proposal, well, from regulators and from legislators and policymakers to your proposal so far? I've been talking about this for years, and so far it hasn't uh, really gotten very much traction. I think the primary reason is, number one, people aren't aware of the fact that you have a speed limiter Mm -hmm. Your car, because who goes 140 miles an hour? The other is government bureaucrats always tend to prefer the more complicated, expensive, <laughs> time-consuming, and less effective solution to a problem when there may be a very simple one just, you know, under the, under their noses. And I think this one is one which which is there. And as I say again, any state could adopt the legislation in a week, have it go into effect that very year, and you try it. And if it seems to work well and reduces accidents, then other states can try it. If for some reason I'm wrong and it doesn't work very well or there's a problem with it, then that state simply erases that law and you're back at zero. You're not talking about any new systems. You're not talking about new software even. You're just talking about basically setting a value in a field just like Virtually every computer user does with many programs. One of the the things that some uh, listeners raised yesterday, or at least one listener, was, okay, well, what good would this do if some cars were, were had this limiting technology and others didn't? Under your proposal, pretty much all cars, including existing cars on the road, would be able to transition to this right away, right? That's exactly right. Virtually every car on the road today with the possible exception of some of these 1920 antiques that they roll out on special occasions, has this computer, has a top speed limiter already built in, it's tested, it works, you don't have to have a GPS locator, mm. you don't have to have a database of posted speed limits, all you got to do is change that one little value, you go in there, you find the field that says top speed or speed limiting field, and if it says 130, you change it and you make it 90 or 95 or 100, whatever that state feels is appropriate. By the way, Texas might have a higher uh, rate, say, than Connecticut. Sure. Sure. Uh, no, that uh, that makes sense, and uh, I find that very difficult to uh, to disagree with. Let me ask you about a legal issue, which has become very much a political issue as well, and it's something I know you've been following very, very closely. A judge has apparently rejected uh, President Trump's claim of immunity in his prosecution. I know you've been all over this in your commentary and even as an activist to some extent. What do you make of uh, the decision by Judge Chutkin saying that uh, President Trump is not immune from prosecution? 
Right decision? Wrong decision? I think it's entirely true as a matter of law. I've said so for, for many years. And by the way, you probably recall that when Trump was in office, I was frequently asked to do a legal analysis on some of his proposals. Some I said were constitutional, even I, though I might disagree with them. Some of them I said probably weren't constitutional, even regardless of how I felt about them. I think it's pretty clear that, that you don't get immunity, perpetual immunity particularly, uh, once you're out of office for things that you may have done. You may have a separate issue if you're talking about somebody who is sitting as a president at the moment. For example, Biden. You wouldn't want somebody, say, in Iowa, some uh, prosecutor in Iowa, suddenly yanking him in on some charge and tying up the entire government. But Trump has been out of office now for quite some time. Uh, if, in fact, he committed various crimes, and the evidence seems to suggest that he has, then I think it's, it's a proper ruling. But uh, by way of full disclosure, remember that I was the one who actually filed a complaint against Trump uh, in Georgia. And by the way, I think that's the one which is likely to give him the most trouble. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask that. I, I realized you were behind that, uh, basically the impetus of that prosecution. Do you think that's the toughest uh, case that he's facing? I think it's toughest for many reasons. First of all, whether or not he gets elected president or not, he can't pardon himself mm -hmm. and promise to pardon people who might testify against him. Anybody convicted is facing a minimum of five years. There are no pardons, or at least the governor can't grant a pardon in the state. Uh, pardons are rare. They are using a RICO uh, thing, which, again, is one thing I recommended, which gives them tremendous, tremendous power to bring in all different kinds of people and testimony and things which you couldn't otherwise bring in. And so for all these reasons, I think, yeah, you're going to – that's the most dangerous for him. We know that a couple of those people have already flipped. I think I can say with virtual certainty that many more of those named defendants in Georgia are going to flip and testify against Trump. Another thing that's very much on people's minds, especially if they have children or grandchildren that are on college campuses, is the issue of free speech. You've spent uh, the better part of the last few decades in and around college campuses. Give me your view on the state of free speech on college campuses these days and how people who feel that minority views are being repressed. And I generally hear it mostly from right-leaning parents or right-leaning students, how people whose uh, views might be being suppressed on college campuses can guarantee their free speech in the future. Okay, that's a little complicated. I'll say, answer your first question, the way I would describe free speech on campuses today I can't use on radio, <laughs> is that it does look like uh, the rules are not evenly enforced. What they can do is they can file complaints uh, with the Department of Education. Uh, the Department of Education is currently investigating some 50 different schools, about a dozen different universities. My university, George Washington University, has the unique distinction of being under two different investigations. But turning to the testimony today, you, you, or yesterday, I guess, mm -hmm. Uh, your listeners probably remember that the, the college presidents got up there and basically said, oh, we can't do anything about it. This free speech. We can't stop them from doing it. Well, a word I can use on the, on the air is that's crap and BS. And just to give you a quick example, my little university, 
They said they can't do things because of free speech. Well, they suspended it, almost expelled a student for very briefly displaying a religious symbol, just displaying it. When one of our law students used the single word Jew, J-E-W, in a private conversation, they began an investigation of the student. Uh, when some students, Chinese students, put up posters criticizing human rights violations by the Chinese government, uh, they began an investigation which, as you know, probably could lead, could threaten the lives of those students because the communists have a way of doing something about it. They ordered one of our students to stop displaying a Palestinian flag, although students were displaying all kinds of other flags. They said there's a real risk that he might fall to the ground, hit somebody on the head. And I've never heard of somebody being injured by a falling flag. And in my case, I was a tenured professor. I was ordered to respond to a complaint that said I was rude, R-U-D-E, when I asked a non-GW trespasser to leave an illegally entered private non-GW building. And a couple of years ago, on the eve of their graduation, they almost expelled several students for publishing a satire of the dean in an April Fool's issue. <laughs> Tell me colleges can't crack down. Everything I gave as an example here is obviously a hundred times less serious than calling for the death of Palestine or the, you know, from the river to the sea, whatever they're talking about. These are nothing. They didn't hesitate. Uh, another organization looked at Harvard, which is one of those that testified uh, yesterday, and they pointed out seven different violations of free speech over the last couple of years. So these colleges can crack down if they want. I'm a notorious defender of free speech, but when it crosses the line and it goes from a, a mere expression of a, of a view to a threat or harassment or whatever, it can and should be punished. Colleges don't do it. You, if you know of an instance, you should write to the Department of Education, file a formal complaint. It's very easy. And by the way, if the person involved doesn't want to file a complaint, wants to remain anonymous, get a friendly professor. They can file it also. You don't have to be the victim. And send a copy to your single legislator, your representative in the House, and also your two senators, because they are beginning to crack down and put pressure on the schools. I guess one question some people may have is, where is that line between hate speech and free speech? For some people, that phrase that you alluded to, from the river to the sea, is a call for the abolition of Israel and is uh, deeply anti-Semitic. For other people, it's more of a, a show of Palestinian solidarity. Before you know whether or not it's appropriate to uh, make a complaint with the Department of Education, how are you to know kind of where that line is? In some cases, I admit it would be difficult to draw, but we have a standard which has been around for almost 100 years, which says that as long as the speech does not present a clear and present, clear and present danger, it is constitutionally protected. So, for example, I could stand up in the middle of the quad of my university and start yelling, let's nuke Norway. Is that a clear and present danger to anyone on campus? Obviously not. Uh, none of them are in Norway at the moment, and even if by some bizarre circumstance somebody would get the idea of nuking Norway, there's no way they could do it. It's not a very real threat. So simply saying, in general, let's eliminate Israel, that is not a threat to anyone on the campus. 
Now, if you have a Jewish student and you put that on his door, that's very different. If somebody's walking by a Jewish student and starts yelling at the Jewish student that all Jews should be dead or in a gas chamber or whatever, that's a threat that crosses the line. Where it's a close case, then the agency, which has the expertise, can make that decision. And by the way, let me tell you, having been on the inside of some of these, the mere fact that a complaint is filed, much less as the department agrees to investigate, puts tremendous pressure on a university to do something about it and to take things seriously. Another uh, alternative, by the way, is the fact that increasingly alumni and trustees are now getting completely upset about what's going on. They're threatening to withhold their their contributions, in many cases very large ones, or they're threatening uh, to do other things about mm. the school. And by the way, there's an underlying question here, which maybe we can get into another time, and that is putting aside what the university can do if there are students running around who want to make all these slogans and, and so on. question is why. Why is it on college campuses, and apparently not among students, uh, not among kids of the same age? You don't find too many kids 18 to 25 who are not in college, who are out there working in the real world, marching around and doing these kind of things. So why only on college campuses? That's probably a more important underlying issue. What are we doing to them on the campus that so many of them would have these views? You, you know, it's so interesting in the, in the in considering what the role of campus administrators and college administrators should be in larger political issues. There was a uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal maybe about a month ago by Mike Bloomberg who said college presidents got themselves into this situation where people were demanding that they make a statement on the Israel-Palestinian conflict one way or another because they made statements on George Floyd and all sorts of other issues that have nothing to do with the college. On uh, Face the Nation on uh, Sunday, I think it was the governor of either Colorado or Utah that basically said he's asked the college administrators in his uh, state not to, uh, the, the presidents, not to make any statements on world issues that don't affect their college campus. Do you think the college campus leadership is best to abstain from making comments about world affairs or even domestic affairs that don't directly pertain to the colleges? Exactly. In fact, there is a movement on campuses. I forget the exact name, but that's exactly what they're being urged to do, not to issue statements, whether it's the president or the dean, on anything unless it pretty directly and immediately involves the university itself. And one author put it this way. He said, with regard to the Hamas-Israel war, what are your options? You can condemn one side and express sympathy for the other. That's a, a sure loser, he says. He says you can condemn both sides. That's an even sure loser because both sides will be aggravated. You could support the legitimate aspirations of both sides and reject violence. And then you're going to be faulted for occupying a, a lofty perch on these issues. Uh, or you can issue a general statement, support a peace and diplomatic negotiation, and then you're going to be accused of trafficking in pious platitudes. College presidents, deans are not chosen because they have some particular skill or ability or training to deal with international issues. 
to deal with uh, starvation in Africa, <laughs> to deal with police shootings. Right, and nuclear like that. Right. So I think unless it directly and immediately involves the, the university, somebody's going to put a road through the middle of it, somebody's going to take away their scholarships or whatever, the answer is no, don't say anything. Individual professors, sure, they can say anything they want, but the university should not then feel an obligation to come out and say, Professor Smith just said, blah, 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 this is outrageous and we disagree. No, you make no position. Individual professors express their own views, and I think everybody recognizes that. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about this because you wrote something very interesting on this that uh, I think people are going to be very fascinated by. There's been a lot of discussion, a lot of very heated debate over the role of transgender athletes at the uh, collegiate level, at the high school level, at the Olympic level. And a lot of folks are calling for states to pass laws to make sure people that were born biological females are competing against folks that were born biological females and the same with uh, people born biological males. Give me your view on the transgender issue as it relates to sports specifically, especially as it relates to colleges. I think very clearly that there are at least four very compelling reasons why the M to F transgender athlete, the male turning into a female supposedly shouldn't be allowed to play and compete on girls' teams. First, in most sports, males have a very significant size and strength advantage. That means that they can rob girls and women of opportunity to compete fairly and win, more importantly, perhaps at the college level, obtain scholarships, uh, preference and admission, other advantages. Secondly, in contact sports, and this is football, boxing, wrestling, uh, even basketball, there is a very real danger of serious and possibly permanent physical injuries to girls and women. And by the way, even in non-contact sports like volleyball, I've documented four of them, and there probably are many more, where girls have been seriously injured permanently because they were playing against a much bigger, taller, stronger male. Third is when you, when you force uh, girls and women to shower and change clothing with these M2F uh, trans, it violates their right to sexual and bodily privacy. There are many schools now which force these girls to change their clothing, to shower with these people with testicles and, and a penis, and uh, that's unreasonable. I found a court decision saying it's unreasonable even to, have, to force a male to display himself before the other kind, the uh, female-to-male trans person. So it's much more serious, I think, with girls. And I know of one place up in Vermont where the girls now have to change in a, uh, uh, in a, a toilet stall because they don't want to expose themselves. Mm-hmm. Finally, mm-hmm. I think, it, bearing the tiny minority of male to to female transgender athletes who happen to want to play a particular sport like volleyball is much less unfair than barring males from female-only teams if there is no corresponding men's team. Very quickly, at my school, GW, we have a women's volleyball uh, team, NCAA, but no men. I coach the, the, the men in a club team. I can tell you, we got 30 or 40 every year who, if they were allowed to go on the women's team 
either because they were allowed or they pretended to be trans, they could beat the women, take away their scholarships, get preferential admission, get better programs. So barring, I don't know, one-tenth of one percent of uh, male-to-female transgender athletes who happen to be skilled at volleyball because they're really males is far less unfair than barring ordinary, everyday, typical, traditional males uh, simply because they happen to have a penis and we don't have a uh, men's NCAA volleyball team at GW. So, so the solution is to allow male athletes the option to play on female teams if they qualify and if there's no male team rather than simply say that they have to identify as a female in order to play. Yeah, but that would be crazy because right. I think in most sports uh, the males would dominate. And you would have a female basketball, volleyball, football, or any other team made up entirely of people with a penis. And that's not what we want. That's not what Title uh, VI was designed to protect against. Uh, so is, is the solution... The problem, obviously, is when you have males, and I don't call them biological males, because that's what male means. Right, right, I understand. calling us a, a round circle. A circle <laughs> is round. A male is somebody who has male uh, external genitalia, who has male chromosomes, the XY, who has the narrower pelvis that males have and females do not have. If you have them, and you said if they meet the criteria, the criteria right now is claiming, claiming simply to be transgender. And I found an instance where some guy uh, who had a beard claimed to be transgender, and they let him on the team. And he hurt the he hurt a po- a po- person on the other side. So from a policy perspective, the sanest thing to do is just to prohibit this. I think the only fair thing to do is to prohibit them, or if they want to set up separate competitions, there are enough people interested, you could have a male-to-female transgender volleyball tournament between uh, uh, schools or colleges within a certain region. But I think that there's no solution to this which is absolutely fair, and everybody would agree that it's fair to everybody. And what I'm suggesting is, since we are already at dozens of schools, barring males from competing on female teams, if they don't claim to be transgender, it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. to allow one person who doesn't have to meet any criteria to go on to uh, and to try out for a women's team simply by saying, oh, I happen to believe, I happen to believe that I... Let me put it to you like this. Would a 20-year-old be able to be permitted to uh, compete in the senior Olympics where you have to be over 50? (laughs) Simply because he says, oh, I feel like I'm only uh, uh, over 50, or I believe I'm 55 years of age. Right. Yeah, I bet I could do uh, pretty well in my uh, in in my son's t-ball league, but uh, something tells me they're not going to let me participate in that just because I feel like a child. Uh, Professor John Banzeff, it is always a uh, treat to talk with you. Uh, not only do I always feel more informed, but I, I feel more inspired towards seeking out-of-the-box creative solutions and towards activism in general. I appreciate you staying up late with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
other side of midnight. This is a birthday bumper music selection from none other than Camille Ignizio, who I have not seen in a little while, but uh, she's a uh, wonderful person and the mother of uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Vinny Ignizio. It's her birthday today, and uh, she requested this song, and uh, very apropos given the conversation we had with uh, John Banzaff about transgender athletics. Going to get to your calls in a moment, but here is a story that I just find, on the one hand, bizarre, on the other hand, very cool, okay? I'm a collector, and I'm a collector of rather outdated things, okay? Well, there is a Florida man by the name of Michael Harris, who... He's, uh, he lives in the Largo area, and we're very happy to be heard on Florida Man Radio. He is a, a Titanic super fan, meaning the movie Titanic. And he is seeking to collect, are you ready for this? One million VHS copies of the movie Titanic. He currently has 2,500 copies of the movie each of which carries two VHS tapes. And if that's what gives him joy, good for him. More power to him. But apparently the folks at The Hustle did the math, and he would ultimately need to store, if he's successful, 33.6 thousand cubic feet worth of tapes. That's a lot of space and a lot of rent to pay on that space. I think I have a copy of the movie Titanic somewhere in my mom's basement, unless she threw it out. But uh, if I do have it, I'm going to try and, you know, try and give him my copy. Here he was speaking with uh, ABC Action News in Florida about why he's doing this. His goal is to collect one million VHS copies. 
Well, you know, Titanic is best on VHS. September 1st, 1998, take the voyage home. That's what they were saying. That's what I was playing on the VCR. I was watching this thing over and over and over again. I checked that P.O. box. I mean, I got to fill the car up because there's so much Titanic, baby. I'm trying to get to a million. We have 2,467 right now, so we are so close <laughs> to that one million. I'm going to have to get a warehouse because obviously this thing is thick. I go to sleep thinking about Titanic and I wake up thinking about Titanic. Can't escape this movie. Everyone had it. Your grandma had it. Your mom, your dad, whoever. Someone in your family had this movie. How much money are you spending on this hobby? <laughs> oh, oh, we are in the thousands. Mm. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, I will go in debt for this gladly because it is well worth it. You know what I don't understand? And, and maybe he'll turn out to be the smartest guy there is. I remember there was an episode of the cartoon Goof Troop that I saw about 30 years ago that uh, – more than that maybe – that there's one obscure baseball player and one guy, a kid, tries to buy all the baseball cards of this obscure player and destroy them all so that he has the most valuable card in the world. Maybe he's going to try and do something like that. But I don't understand what good a million copies of the tape would do. I mean they're all the same. They all have the same movie on them. I mean, even if you wanted to watch it every day – Hour after hour after hour, what good does that do you to have a million copies? Why isn't one copy enough? Maybe one and a backup. Maybe one and ten backups. Maybe one and a hundred backups. But why would you need 2,500, let alone a million? I don't know. I can't tell if this guy is is quirky enough to merit my interest for an interview, but I suspect that he might be. So I'm thinking about reaching out to him. Um We'll, we'll see. We'll see what else is going on. But uh, I, I found the whole thing, the whole endeavor, very intriguing. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Coming up in uh, just a couple of minutes, there is another retro trend that's coming back. I'll tell you about it. Your influence counts. Use it.